Welcome. We desire to worship as a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. Um, if you're new to Grace, welcome. We do have a welcome center outside on the plaza. We'd love to give you a, a simple gift and get to know you. Um, I'd ask you all to stand this morning as we read our call to worship, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. Mike preached on this last week, and we've been memorizing it. Let's read it together this morning. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would draw us to you this morning, Lord, with joyful hearts. Uh, receive our praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Life of trials test my faith. I set my hope on Jesus. And when the questions come and doubts remain, I set my hope on Jesus. For the dangerous world at there's a joy that runs still deeper. There's a truth that's more than all I feel. I set my hope on Jesus. I set my hope on Jesus. My rock, my
standing with us as we read God's word this morning. We'll read from Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Paul writes here, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. As part of our worship, we would encourage you to, to give um, and give to the Lord, not that which is yours, but that which is already his, that which you've received from him. Um, and give cheerfully, just as Second Corinthians 9 speaks of, and prayerfully and joyfully. Um, and as we continue, we'll pray this morning also for Tim and Kirsten Jenkins. Um, they're on furlough now, and they're worshiping with us, and so you, we see them often. Uh, but we want to pray for them as they seek wisdom in, in future decisions and direction for their family. Um, Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning. Um, we come to you, the giver of all good gifts. Uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be turned to you with each gift that we're given. Uh, Lord, our life is sustained because of you, our provision. Uh, Lord, even every breath we don't recognize or we're not conscious every moment of all the gifts that you are giving Lord, even in the simple act of keeping us alive, and we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for life. We pray that we wouldn't see it as our own, but that we would see it as yours. Lord, we thank you for the gift of, of fellowship, of family, of, of friends. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you didn't make us here to be alone, uh, but have put people around us. 
Lord, we thank you even for the gift of the church, a place where, where we can see and be a part of the love that you have for us. Lord, we can be a part of the sanctification process where, where you work on us to transform us to Christ's likeness for your glory. God, be at work in your church this morning. We thank you for this good gift. Lord, we confess that at times um, we are more concerned with the gift and not the giver. Lord, that we seek after things of this world, Lord, that our hearts could even be drawn um, to love the world and love the gift more than the giver. Lord, I pray that you would uh, forgive us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where those things lie in our hearts, Lord, where those, uh, those, that, that search for satisfaction, um, God, when it's outside of you, I pray that you would show that to us, Lord, and thank you that we're not stuck in a place where, where we're hopeless, but we can, we can seek change in your spirit, uh, Lord, we can ask and be transformed by your word, Lord, help Make us into a church that loves the giver. Lord, we thank you even for your greatest gift, the gift of Christ on the cross, our salvation, our hope. God, help us to cling to that gift. Lord, we thank you because that gift has reconciled us to you. And Lord, that gift even even reconciles us to one another. Lord, there's no division in your church. You have unified us in, in the heavenlies. And Lord, I pray that, that we would reflect that here on earth, that our love for Christ and our love for one another would be a testimony um, within our own church, Lord, and outside of our church, to the fact that you are alive and work. Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we, we, we bring our needs before you, uh, Father. Um, we, we ask for your provision. Lord, we ask for wisdom. Lord, I pray, I pray that as well for Tim and, and Kirsten as, we, uh, as they seek direction uh, in their future, Lord, and future ministry opportunities. I pray that you would give them wisdom. Lord, I pray for our church that you would give us eyes to see. Uh, Lord, that we would see opportunities uh, to, to minister, opportunities to serve, opportunities to show mercy. And Lord, that we would do it and do it for your glory. We thank you for the one call that we have. We thank you for our, our God and our Savior, Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us again as we sing? Before the world began, every thought and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. All creation holds together by the power of your Lord. And the stars declare your glory, and the land and seas rejoice. You're the Yeah, you laugh again. 
with light our ways unknown to you but by your grace you're making all things new so satisfy us in our number days establish every after while we Father, we praise you and worship you as the everlasting God. Lord, you are before all things, and in you all things hold together now. You uh, will endure forever. Lord, we um, thank you that you hold our days in, in your hand, that you know the end from the beginning, that you're worthy of all of our trust. Lord, help us to express that trust in you again, and would you show us your trustworthiness, and especially the love. Uh, that you've shown us in your son. Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus as your word is preached this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. A prisoner for the Lord. Because when you are Christ's prisoner, you care more about his will than yours. At my ordination service in 1990, my pastor at the time, Dr. Doug Willey, gave me uh, this desk plate. It was a very common thing to do in those days. They put your name on it and you put it on your desk. Uh, on one side, it says, Reverend Michael Shera. My name is Michael. On the other side, it says, A Prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1. And he told me in front of the church, he says, People are going to walk into your office. It was back in the day, in the, eight, in the 90s, where people would walk into an office and there'd be one of these on their desk. And uh, he said, they'll walk into your office, they'll see Reverend Michael Sheeran. Now, this is a great idea, by the way, except for the Reverend. I've never used the title. People don't, you want to be humble, and humble people don't use that. So, um, Reverend, they'll see Reverend Michael Sheeran, but you will be looking at this, a prisoner of the Lord. And I thought it was a good reminder. Um, I've had that on my shelf in my offices at the three churches I have served uh, by God's grace in over 38 years of pastoral ministry. Uh, but what this, what this desk plate uh, tells me is the same thing that Ephesians 4.1 tells you and all of us. It begins... Uh, 
I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And then there's a very strong, strong appeal. And uh, Paul, we'll see it next week, but Paul basically is saying to them, you have to do what I say because I'm speaking with the Lord's authority. So he gives a, a strong appeal. But he starts it like this. I, therefore, uh, the prisoner of the Lord. And so there's, there's a therefore that, that chapter 4 is beginning with. Uh, it's a conclusion that draws attention to what flows out of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Paul told believers uh, very significant truths. They had been blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen, predestined to become God's family, called, forgiven, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a guarantee, told them they were once dead in sin, now they're alive in Christ, they once were far off from Christ, now they have the covenants of promise and hope in God. They, are, they have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who is our peace. They've been reconciled to God because Christ was put to death. And at the, at the cross, he put to death the enmity of our sin against him. And so the believer is no longer a stranger, an alien, but they are family. Uh, They're being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God, heirs, members of the body, partakers of the promise. And, and Paul then says, now I'm praying. And I'm praying that you will grasp these truths and that you will have power to live in light of those truths. So you have truth and the power to live Christ's holy calling. And so therefore is very significant here. It marks a transition from uh, positional truth to practical truth, from principle to practice. So here, uh, are you, you've been reading about things you should believe. Now, here are things you should do. So believe Bible doctrine and obey Bible duties, if you will. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 are believe Bible doctrine. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are obey Bible duties. And, and they all go together. There are 40 commands that are coming at us in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And this is a, this is a, a huge thing. He's moving on from basically this, this new body that's been built now to the standards by which it operates. And he's gone from exposition now. He'll be going to exhortation. He's going from what God has done in the indicative to what, what uh, we must be and do with the imperatives. Uh, from doctrine to duty, as John Stott put it, mind-stretching theology, and then concrete, concrete implications in everyday living. So this is where we're going. He had, he had taught them, he had prayed for them, and now he's giving them a solemn appeal. So as one person put it, instruction, intercession, and exhortation is a strong trio of weapons in any Christian teacher's armory. He's going now from doctrinal, the vertical relationship with God in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are bedrock to what you will do now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the practical horizontal relationship with others. And you can't start at chapter 4 without understanding what goes on in chapters 1, 2, and 3, or you'll get way off, you'll be haywire in your Christian life. Think of it this way, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, 
It's how God sees the Christian in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is how others should see you living in Christ. And so this is where we're going. And what happens is uh, the, the first six verses of this chapter are about a call to unity. Saying to the church, because of what you believe, you need to be united because you have been united. And it is rooted in something that Paul told the Ephesian elders before he ever uh, went to prison. He did this a few years earlier, and it's recorded in Acts 20. And what he tells the Ephesian elders is, when I leave, savage wolves will come in, men who will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And he calls them to live in unity that flows from these Christ-honoring attitudes and core beliefs that have already been given and will continue to be given. And so he starts the appeal to unity with this. He says, I'm wearing a chain as a prisoner. Not a gold chain. Okay, I know a lot of people wearing gold chains nowadays. We used to wear them when I was in high school as well. So if you got a gold chain, things come back around. He's wearing chains for Christ who is in jail. By the way, the, cha- the chain looks great. Okay? <laughs> I see you. I see you right there. He wears chains for Christ in jail in Rome. And what an irony that is. Here is a political structure known for peace. Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, who has now put a man in jail for proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, for proclaiming the gospel of peace. What an irony. Paul is now beginning chapter 4, reminding them that his will was captive to Christ, not Nero. He was a prisoner, as he put it, for the Lord or of the Lord. Because when you are Christ's prisoner, you care more about his will than yours. I mean, what kind of person does that make you? When, when you can wake up in the morning and say, I, I want God's will to be done in and through my life. Well, chapter 4 illustrates it. So does Paul's life. What I want to do is give you some biographical observations about Paul's life before we see what being Christ's prisoner does in us. And the things I'm going to bring out about Paul are things that are really biographical about him. And the first thing that needs to be said is that before he became a Christian, he was Satan's prisoner. So he's saying he is the prisoner of Jesus. But before that, he was Satan's prisoner. And, and this is how it was explained and he, he, how the Spirit of God had Paul explain it even after he was saved. He said this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning and tramp or tamper with the word of God, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And he said this, if our gospel is veiled, literally hidden, can't be seen, can't be understand, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He said, in their case, which used to be his case, 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I said this last week, I think I've said it many times, but if you're not a Christian today, you are captive to Satan. You are a prisoner of Satan. There's no middle ground where you can just be a free agent. No, you are either owned by Satan or owned by Christ. That's the truth. In fact, Paul says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And we're your servants for Jesus' sake. That's what he says, because it's the truth. He goes on to tell Timothy later in his life, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Because of this. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If you're not a Christian today, you have been captured by Satan to do his will. Your will is not your own, and and your will does not belong to Christ until and unless you believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved. And what you see, and this is what was true of Paul, whoever is blinded by Satan, whoever is captured by Satan, whoever is a prisoner of Satan, they believe untrue things about God. I remember when I was not a Christian before, and I remember because I became a believer in 1982, I I heard the gospel over and over again, but God at that moment, in, in, in 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 that year, opened my eyes to my sinfulness, convicted me of my sin, where I would admit the truth of the gospel. But before that time, I thought that being a Christian was you tried to be good or that you tried to be better than whoever you were you know, comparing yourself to. I didn't know and I was blind to God's goodness and his grace in the gospel. I could have rattled off Jesus died on the cross. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that he died in my place as my substitute, shedding his blood to pay the penalty my sins deserved. I wasn't tracking with that. I didn't understand that. I didn't believe that. And Paul had been a prisoner of Satan. And by the way, you might say, well, I don't believe that either. And and we might look at you and say, well, you look like a good person. A good person is, is really a person who is trying to, you know, work their way to heaven. No, no, nobody's a good person. God is good. And, and, and you need to admit that you're, you're, you're sinful and you need a savior. And if, you're, if, you're gonna, if you resist that, you will continue to be a prisoner of Satan. Now here's what happened with Paul. He had been a prisoner of Satan, and then what he did, as a prisoner of Satan, he threw people in prison. Not just any people, Christians. He threw Christians in prison. That's what he did. So prior to his conversion to Christianity, Paul agreed to the death of Christians, and then he arrested and imprisoned believers. This is the kind of man we're dealing with here. In in Acts 7, we read that they cast Stephen, the first martyr here, they, they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was agreeing with with Stephen being put to death. 
for being a Christian. You get to Acts 9, and if you, if you turn your Bibles to Acts 9, what you'll notice in Acts 9 is, is what Paul was like as a, as a prisoner of Satan. Now, by the way, if you read this, and you're like, this sounds like people I know. They're probably not Christians. Or they're, or they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna fall hard when, they, when, when God leads them to repentance. I, I don't know. All I know is here's what, this is what Paul was like. Okay, here it is. Ready? Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And you're like, well, I don't know anybody who's saying they want to murder Christians. Well, do you know anyone who's threatening Christians? Do you know anyone who's uh, harassing Christians behind their back? Do you know any Christians that are, you know, people that are, you know, just having a field day against Christians? Paul, Saul, still breathing threats. He's doing it continually. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here's what he did. He goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. That's code. That's what was known as. These are, these are believers. These are believers in Jesus. If he found any that belonged to Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is who we're dealing with. This is what he was like before he became a Christian. Because those blinded by Satan do hateful, unkind things. Those who are prisoners of Satan do unkind, hateful things. Now, maybe not every moment of their life, but they do things that are bad. I remember when I was in high school, and uh, I, I mocked Christians. I remember I walking down the pathway at Downey High, and I remember seeing a circle of, of people professing faith in Christ, and they, they had Bibles, they were singing songs, they were, and, and I knew some of them, and some of them spoke of, of loving Jesus in ways that I couldn't fathom, I didn't understand what they were talking about. And that was at a moment in time when I would have said I was Christian, use it as a verb rather than a noun, uh, that oh, I'm, I'm Christian, uh, whatever I think I meant by that, but it wasn't, it wasn't gospel-centered. I had no understanding, accurate understanding of the term, what it meant to be a believer in Jesus or to be a Christian, and so I, I mocked Christians. I remember even saying about some of the guys, they're only in that circle because the, the, the gals are so cute. I remember like, thinking the only reason they're spending their lunch hour singing these silly songs, opening up their Bibles, you know, I couldn't fathom. Well, Paul, you know, he was Satan's prisoner and he threw Christians in prison. And he was against Christians. He, was, he wanted to do a lot of bad things towards Christians. But what happens next? What happens next in his life is that Jesus makes him his prisoner. Jesus made Paul his prisoner. So when he says in, in verse 1, a prisoner of the Lord, the phrase literally is, the prisoner in the Lord. It speaks of Paul's union with Christ. In the Greek text, it is not of, but in. So he speaks of himself as a prisoner in the Lord. His relationship with Jesus gives him authority to say what he's saying because he has this vital union with Christ that's never going to get broken. He became Christ's prisoner on the road to Damascus. And if you're still in Acts 9, what you'll notice is, if you pick it up with me at verse 3, here is what happened to Paul. Now here's how Jesus 
made him his prisoner in, in real time, okay? It says, as he went his way, this is Acts 9.3, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And he, he fell, falls to the ground and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? The voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So to persecute Christians was to persecute Christ. And he gets this instruction, rise, enter the city, you will be told what to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless. They couldn't say a word. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Paul gets up, his eyes were, were open, but he couldn't see. He was blinded by the light that flashed. And they, it says that they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight. He was blinded for three days. And he neither ate nor drank. And we're going to find out in a moment what he was doing was he was fasting and praying. He didn't eat or drink. And, and a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, God says to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Go to Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. That's how specific God was in these instructions. And Ananias says this, and all of us would have said this, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Presumably, Ananias, you know, he's saying, he's going to arrest me if I get anywhere near him. But what God says in Acts 9.15, it says, The Lord said to him, Go, he is a chosen instrument of mine. So he had chosen him from before the foundation of the world. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. After Paul gets saved and he, he becomes a prisoner and he, he gets thrown in jail and all of that, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, going back to creation, has shown in our hearts, he's, he's using that figure to, to take him back to the, the Damascus road, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He knew that he had been taken prisoner by Jesus. He was no longer Satan's prisoner. And he was no longer wanting to throw Christians in jail. Even though, and even after he got saved, he goes to Jerusalem, tries to interact with the disciples, and it doesn't happen. Barnabas has to, they're, they're saying, no, we, we, hear, we heard about this guy. Barnabas has to come along and give his testimony. And the next thing you know, they accept him in the church. He became a prisoner of Jesus. Are you a prisoner of Jesus? Are you a prisoner of Jesus? The other day I was telling someone I was preaching on this, and they're like, wow, that's an interesting way to put it, a prisoner of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. It means that you've been united to Christ by grace through faith because of God's initiative, 
And that when you are captive to Jesus, when you are a prisoner of Jesus, you see life through the Bible. That you realize the Word of God is now the driving force in your life. You're going to be following that the rest of your life. I remember as a new believer sitting there at Long Beach State uh, with, my, with my Bible under my desk on the, on the little shelf and, and looking down at it one time during class thinking, for the rest of my life, my life is wrapped up in that book. When you're captive to Jesus, you see life through the Bible and, because you have a new commander and a new calling. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll keep my word. You, you were blind, but now you see. So Paul, who was Satan's prisoner, and then threw people, Christians, in prison, Jesus made Paul his prisoner. But then the next thing happens. Then he gets thrown in jail as a prisoner for following Jesus. The very thing he was going to do to other people. The very thing he was involved in doing. So he says, I, the prisoner in the Lord. That this emphatic personal pronoun, I. He had already said it in Ephesians 3.1. Why is he repeating the fact of his imprisonment? Why does he say in Ephesians 3.1, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then in Ephesians 4.1, a prisoner in the Lord, and why does he say to the Philippians, my imprisonment, and, and I'm an ambassador in chains? He even says in Coloss- to the Colossians, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. And he says to the Colossians, remember my chains. Why is he so hung up on it? Because he was hung up on a chain. He was a prisoner. He was bound with chains as a, as a criminal. Like Jesus was. In Philemon, he speaks of Onesimus. And he says, whose father, whose spiritual father I became in my imprisonment for the gospel. People getting saved while he's in prison. He didn't call himself a prisoner, you know, to get sympathy points. You know, someone asks you, how are you doing? Well, this is going bad, and that's going bad, and all this is going bad, and oh my goodness, please feel sorry for me. Paul didn't call himself a prisoner to get sympathy. No, he was giving the church a sober reminder of the cost of following Jesus, and that the Spirit was enabling him to live worthy of that no matter what the cost. That's what he was doing. Paul could have said prisoner of Rome. Victim of Nero, Caesar, and he called himself a prisoner of Jesus. The will of God sent him to prison for Christ. God's purpose gave him this eternal perspective, and, and, and even his bonds, are trace, they, you trace them back to his original call. You go back to Acts 9, verse 16, what did, what did Jesus say to Ananias? Go, because he's a chosen instrument of mine. But then he says this, I am going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you're a Christian today, God's been showing you since day one of of baby Christianhood how much you're going to suffer for Jesus' name. Paul, he spent long stretches of, of time in jail for his faith. You've got what happened in Acts 16 in the Philippian jail. We'll get back to that. You've got the Holy Spirit. Uh, He says to the the Ephesian elders, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. 
You see in Acts 21, they're on a voyage, and they arrive at Ptolemus, and they greet the, the brethren, and they stay with them, and then they go on, and they stay many days, and a prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea, and he takes Paul's belt, and he, he binds his own feet and hands, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, the owner of this belt is going to be bound by the Jews at Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So the apostle to the Gentiles is going to be put, thrown in jail. By, by, by the Jews and be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So what happens? Well, the Jews falsely accuse Paul to the Romans and get him arrested. And then he starts, you know, talking about himself and people start talking about himself like it's Paul the prisoner. It's Paul the prisoner. It's become his new identity. He spent two years in jail in Caesarea. We see it in Acts 24. And even Felix, he comes in and, and, and he has a, it says he has a rather accurate Understanding of the way, a knowledge of the way. He knew about the gospel. He knew about Christians. And he says to the centurion, keep him in custody, but give him some liberty. Let his friends visit him. But he's still in jail. At one point, he's giving a defense, and he says, I hope that all who hear me would become such as I am, a Christian, except for the chains. Like, like I hope you don't get thrown in jail like me. Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel. When Philemon was written, Paul would have been in his 60s, which was considered aged in that culture, in that time. He's still a prisoner due to preaching Jesus. He lives under house arrest in Rome. You see it at the end of Acts. And they could put Paul in chains, but they couldn't chain the message. The word of God, he even says, I'm bound like a prisoner, but the word of God is not bound. It's free to roam. I'm always praying, Lord, take the word and bring it to bear on the hearts of anyone who hears me preach. Because I can't make anything happen in their life, but you can take by the word of, but you can, the Holy Spirit takes the word and just pierces your hearts. We're concerned a lot about safety and security, are we not? Paul was concerned not for his own safety, but for Christ's mission. He was not in prison because he made some huge drastic mistake. He was committed to the will of God, and he was chained to a Roman guard, and he's writing letters from prison. He says to the Corinthians, as servants of God, we commend ourselves by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights, and the list goes on. And he says to them, are, 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 are these people that are boasting, are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm better than that. Interesting. He says, I'm speaking like a madman. They want to boast, I'll tell you this. I've been in far greater labors and far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. This is Paul the prisoner. Prisoner for Jesus. He even says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Why? It is because God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus, get this, before the ages began. Don't be surprised. It, it, sometimes you're going to be like, my circumstances are so rotten. 
You need to look at the providence behind those circumstances that you do not like. See what God may want to do. Paul had reason to glory in his chains in which he found himself because he was in those chains for the testimony of Christ. As one person put it, he glories in his chains more than a king in his crown. He says to the Galatians, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. It's because of his relationship to Jesus. His life ends in jail. He probably, all told, spent five or six years in prison for the sake of Christ. And what you see in this man is a total turnaround. He was a faithful witness. He used to bear false witness against Christians. He wasn't a false witness any longer. He was a faithful witness. He was was, uh, rejoicing that he would be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. I wish we could all do that. You see, what, what does God do? What does God do in Paul's life? What, God, what do we see him doing over and over in the Bible? What, what does God do? What God does is he majors on taking something that looks absolutely horrible, something really, really bad, and makes it into something really, really good. Death leads to life. Sin leads to salvation. Foolishness leads to wisdom. Trials lead to endurance. Despair leads to hope. God does these things. In temptation, he gives a way of escape. Slavery leads to freedom, and affliction leads to comfort, and defeat leads to victory. So what what often seems like it's going to ruin you or be your demise, God can use to, to literally defy explanation and restore you and change you and grow you. But when you're captive to Jesus, you experience suffering not as a curse, but as a blessing. This is what Paul continually said. I mean, he formerly was Satan's prisoner. No mistake about it. And he formerly threw Christians in jail. And Jesus made him his prisoner. And then it wasn't, you know, easy living from then on out. It was being thrown in prison for following Jesus and beaten and, and left for dead at times. And he gets to, to Ephesians 4.1. He says, look, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Look at that word next week. It's a very heavy word. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This is the man who was the prisoner of Nero in Rome, under Rome's heavy hand. I mean, power-crazy Nero. Do you know about Nero? What do you know about him? This guy feared revolt so badly that he had his own mom and sister and wife murdered. He set Rome on fire for one reason, so he could rebuild it and and have his, his face uh, carved into every building. And, he, and, and the Senate brings him to a trial, and, and at the trial, he convinces them that it's the Christian's fault and that Paul's the major arsonist. And they throw Paul in prison. And here is Paul not describing himself in terms of geography or in terms of circumstances. He's not saying, I'm a prisoner of Nero or I'm a prisoner of Rome. That didn't define his identity. 
Your problems shouldn't define you. He was a prisoner of the Lord. He was a prisoner in the Lord. The prisoner, that word, you know what it means. It means you, you, you're, you're locked up and you can't get out. No jailbreak for you. The prisoner, you know what it means. It describes a person bound or, or uh, closely linked to or captive to someone else. And he says, I'm bound, I'm linked to, I'm captive to Jesus. Can you say that today? Or are you saying, oh, no, I'm bound by my circumstances. I'm bound by what everybody else is doing to me. I'm bound by how I feel. Or I'm bound by my circumstances, situation in life. Or are you bound to Jesus? He was a prisoner of the Lord, Paul. He was a prisoner of Jesus. His life belonged to God, so nobody could take it. When you give your life completely to Jesus, nothing or no one, they don't pose a threat to you. He told the Ephesian elders, I consider my life of no account dear to myself. I want to finish my course. This is a remarkable thing. Paul said, my life doesn't mean anything to me. I want to finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. I want to testify solemnly to the, grace of, to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Someone asks you, oh, you're a Christian? What are you about? Tell them that you are about the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Don't tell them the latest juicy gossip. Give them the recipe, but then tell them about Jesus. Be, be with your friends, do your work, love your family, and be about the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. The real freedom is only found in surrender to Christ. This is what Paul saw. He was formerly a, 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 a prisoner of Satan, the liar, and, and he chased down and bound Christians to throw them in jail, and he has his soul arrested by the Lord Jesus Christ out on a road, and, and he had been chosen from eternity, and, and he was bound to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You can tell your own story. might not be as dramatic as Paul's. You might think it's boring. It's, it's what God gave you. Here is, here is Paul, a slave of Jesus forever. And it's not going to change. Finds himself in chains as a prisoner for the gospel. What about you? What about you? If you've been called by Jesus Christ, God predestined you to adoption through Christ. You're to walk worthy of that calling. You must yield your will to Jesus. So you have to ask the question, what am I a prisoner of? Like, who are you a prisoner of? What are you a prisoner of? Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is what is true if you're a Christian, and you're, that means you're a prisoner of Jesus. You're, you're Christ's prisoner, that means your will is yielded and must be yielded over and over again to his because your life is given over to God and surrendered to him. But it's so interesting that for many of us, our circumstance drives us such that, that we can't describe ourselves like that. And here's, if, you, if you're a prisoner of Jesus, it means you're a Christian. You were captive to Satan. And Jesus took you captive as his prisoner forever. 
is a union that will never be severed. Jesus isn't divorcing you. He's changed you. He's a prisoner of Jesus. That means that something is now true about you that was not true before. what What is true about you now is that Jesus is your unquestioned Lord, even if you always find yourself questioning him. Because when he willed the Christian life, as Martin Luther put it, and I've quoted this very often, when he willed the Christian life, he willed it that it would be all of repentance. And that he is to be your unquestioned Lord. And, And the most important thing about a prisoner of the Lord is that the Lord Jesus is your Lord. Do I need to repeat that? Okay. The most important thing about a prisoner of the Lord is that the Lord Jesus is your Lord. And so you surrender and yield to his sovereign control and you do it over and over again. You stumble and fall and you, and you, you repent and and you surrender to the lordship of Christ, and, and you, you display sacrificial obedience, which will look different in every life, but it's, it's like, let me boil it down. You believe in Jesus, you will obey the word of God. There's no other way around it. George Truitt uh, was born in 1867, and he, he preached a sermon once called, We Would See Jesus. And I read that sermon the other day, and, and he said this, if, if we would see Jesus, we must make much of his book. He cannot be seen and will not be graciously real to the person who neglects the Bible. Paul loved Jesus, therefore he obeyed the word. Not perfectly, but humbly and dependently. That his whole Christian life as a prisoner in the Lord, was under the umbrella sphere of Christ's lordship, and so must yours be. Or else you've wandered far from home, and you might not even know the way back. He was always thanking God for his saving grace. He says to the Ephesians, you know, I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. By the way, you know when you see something you can't unsee it? Point it, just pick out how many times you see Lord. When you're reading your Bible, how many times you see Lord? You can't read Ephesians without, it just says, Lord, 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 Lord. I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, so I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Like, you know, Jesus saved me when I was dead in sin, unable to save myself. And by the way, I've been saved since 1982, and I I seriously cannot remember a day that I have not thanked Jesus for saving me. Because he saved me. Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in the gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the word of God. Like, again, Lord, bring your word to bear upon every heart that hears this. That you've got to be dependent on grace. What did Paul tell Timothy? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He knew that apart from God's grace, he was nothing. If you're a Christian, you are in God's display case of grace and not stuck behind a glass, uh, you know, case with a lock 
but live free. You, uh, whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. He said, here's what Paul said. Here's what Paul said. I received mercy. Have you received mercy? He said, I have received mercy that in me as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That kind of willingness generated into your will by the Holy Spirit where you would say, I will go anywhere. I will do anything God wants. I will not fear man. Uh, fear of, of God supersedes the fear of man. And, and it's because I have received mercy. As Paul put it, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He says it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Yes, think of yourself as the worst sinner in the world. You must. And that your whole life would be of serving Jesus. If someone asks you what you do or who you are, could you tell them, I serve Jesus Christ, my Lord? Paul was a prisoner of Christ. And he stipulated it because God did on behalf of the Gentiles. Only Jew in the Bible who began using a Gentile name to reflect being sent to the Gentiles. Prison was his pulpit. Formerly secured letters to put Christians in prison. Now he's writing letters to Christians from prison. And the whole time, he keeps praising Jesus. As he said to Timothy, to the king immortal, invisible, the only God, the glory and honor forever and ever, amen. He was persistent in his worship. God made him a persistent, if you're a prisoner of Jesus, you become a persistent worshiper of Jesus. You think about that, that account of the Acts, uh, in Acts 16 of the Philippian jail. What was going on? They were thrown in, Paul, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and about midnight they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and a violent earthquake happens, and the prison crumbles, and the jailer runs in and fearfully falls down before Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Ask and you shall receive. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Like, do that. The next thing you know, he's rejoicing with his household and those who had believed in the Lord. And when you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and you yield yourself to his will, you have a ministry wherever you go, in the workplace, in the school, in the home, in the neighborhood, and your interactions will be flavored by a desire to honor Christ and make him known. Now Jesus, you know, to, to hear some Christians talk, you would think that Jesus came so that they would be a famous influencer for their brand. Jesus didn't come so that you would be a famous influencer for yourself, but that you would influence him and be for him and be so heavily influenced by him and by his word that you, you lose your reliance on yourself. Paul went from a persecutor to a prisoner. And what happened in his life was that. Jesus became the unquestioned Lord of his life. And let's just think about how this could affect our lives. If I, if I assume that the majority of people that are hearing me right now profess faith in Christ, and if you're not a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus and be saved, and if you're not a Christian, this is not about you right now. But if you are a Christian, if, if, if Jesus is the unquestioned Lord or ought to be the unquestioned Lord of your life, 
does that mean? Let's say that you say today, yes, that is it. That's for me. I, I know that. I want that. I, I yearn for that. Okay? Here's one for you. If Jesus is the unquestioned Lord of your life, you are free to truly and honestly be repentant. Like repent of your sins. Not, not a worldly sorrow that, that begets regret, but a deep acknowledgement that you would not presume upon the riches of, and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, that not knowing that God's kindness leads you to repentance. That, 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 and you wouldn't just be uh, having some kind of worldly grief that leads to death, as Paul told the Corinthians, but you would feel a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That you would be grieved into repenting because of your sin, that you would be sin-aware and honestly repentant. What did Paul say about himself? Here's what he said in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 13. He said, I was formerly. This is what I was like. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. blood of Christ humble you to repentant prisonerhood. You would know that you've been acquitted of all cosmic crimes against a holy God and your soul is captive to Christ. It's a prisoner of the Lord, unquestioned Lord of your life. You're free to be truly and honestly repentant. And, and then... Let me mention something else. You live with dueling desires. And, and not, a, yes, you'll live with the dueling desires in, in Ro, like the Romans 7, which is, I want to do the right thing, but I do the wrong thing, and I got to repent and confess that, yes. But I'm talking about these dueling desires that you know that forever with Jesus is better than anything. And you treasure your time with God's people. That you have a desire, like Paul said to the Philippians, I have a desire to be at home and be with Jesus. And I have a desire to stay and help the cause. Like he said to the Corinthians, no longer living for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. That you would, you would say, if the Lord calls me home, I'm going home and I will rejoice. But if he keeps me here and I'm, and I'm still alive tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to be a contributing family member in the body of Christ. We're all a bunch of prisoners of Jesus. We need to help each other. Know that our souls have been saved and secured and are being shaped by the word implanted, which is able to save our souls and, and bear fruit without fail and that your identity and your friendships and your life must be intertwined with family that will not let you go because you have a savior that will not let you go. And you love Jesus and his word and his church. And let me just ask you again, who are you bound to? Who are you prisoner to? Who or what are you held captive to? What's the first thing you think about in the morning? Is it your circumstances or is it the providence that brought those circumstances? 
Like, could you admit your need to be set free? Because Jesus sets the prisoners free, and whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. You go again to Jesus, your only hope, your very life, when your soul is just stirred up. And it's clouded by winds of doubt and fear and anger and resentment and lies and scorekeeping and blaming and wrong desires and confusion and hatred even and unbelief and you hear the prison door locked behind you well it was so easy for gratefulness to flee and grumbling to to enter just deal in truth not lies jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free let your soul be set free by the word of god remind yourself your 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 chains were broken in Jesus' war on sin. You don't have to go back to that. Let Jesus arrest your soul again and again and again. The blessed captivity of the prisoner of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we are children of the King in Christ. And then in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are prisoners of righteousness. And that we... When we are Christ's prisoner, we care more about your will, Lord, than ours. So may your will be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close singing together? Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I rest in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless this gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ
really quick, I want to introduce you to some people. So we have a lot of new members at Grace, and three of them I see, one of them might be in here too, but uh, Tom and Donna Bois right here, just stand up, there's Tom and Donna right here, all right, and in the same row, the new members row, we've got Leslie Warren right here, Leslie, and then, Leslie, and then John Pence is going to be in third hour, and uh, we're really glad you're members at Grace, and we take membership seriously. We take it uh, as a high calling and a, a biblical practice, and so we're glad that these and many others are joining. Um, also, we are trying to single-handedly uh, staff the, the baby home, the One, One Hope for Africa uh, the baby home in, uh, in Pretoria, South Africa. So we have Bethany Ma there, but we've also got Ashley Ortlip. Um, is Ashley here right now? She not? Okay, she's going to leave on January 9th. And she's going to be back on March 30th, so she's going to be there and kind of overlap a little bit with Bethany, I think. Um, there's a support letter outside of the missions table on the plaza, and there's stuff in the email as well. And then Christmas Eve on the plaza, 4 to 5 p.m., so make sure you remember this. Okay, please stand with me. Let's pray. I'm going to read Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, and then we'll pray. These words are, are powerful and true. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for our fellowship. Thank you for the privilege to sing praises to you, to pray, to hear your word, and now to go by your grace, to live for your glory. Lord, strengthen your, your church to the ends of the earth. May the gospel go out clear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.